O Lord, open thou my lips, and my mouth shall show forth thy praise. Make haste, O God, to deliver me. Make haste to help me, O Lord. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. Praise to thee, O Christ, King of eternal glory. I will praise thy name, O Lord, for thy loving kindness and for thy truth. I will praise thee with my whole heart. Before the gods will I sing praise unto thee. I will worship toward thy holy temple and praise thy name for thy loving kindness and for thy truth. For thou hast magnified thy word above all thy name. In the day when I cried, thou answeredst me and strengthenest me with strength in my soul. I will praise thy name, O Lord, for thy loving kindness and for thy truth. All the kings of the earth shall praise thee, O Lord, when they hear the words of thy mouth. Yea, they shall sing in the ways of the Lord, for great is the glory of the Lord. Though the Lord be high, yet hath he respect unto the lowly, but the proud he knoweth afar off. I will praise thy name, O Lord, for thy loving kindness and for thy truth. Though I walk in the midst of trouble, thou wilt revive me. Thou shalt stretch forth thine hand against the wrath of mine enemies, and thy right hand shall save me. The Lord will perfect that which concerneth me. Thy mercy, O Lord, endureth forever. Forsake not the works of thine own hands. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Ghost, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. I will praise thy name, O Lord, for thy loving kindness and for thy truth. The Old Testament lesson for this Wednesday Vespers of Invocabit is written in the 14th chapter of Genesis, beginning at the first verse. When Abram was ninety-nine years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless. I will make my covenant between me and you, and will multiply you exceedingly. Abram fell on his face. God talked with him, saying, As for me, behold, my covenant is with you. You will be the father of a multitude of nations. Your name will no longer be called Abram, but your name will be Abraham. For I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful and I will make nations of you. Kings will come out of you. I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant, to be a God to you and to your offspring after you. I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land where you are traveling, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession. I will be their God." God said to Abraham, As for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskin. It will be a token of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old shall be circumcised among you, every male throughout your generations. He who is born in the house or bought with money from any foreigner who is not of your offspring. 
He who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money must be circumcised. My covenant shall be in your flesh for an everlasting covenant. The uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin, that soul shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. O Lord, have mercy upon us. Thanks be to God. The epistle is written in the second chapter of Colossians, beginning at the sixth verse. Brothers, as therefore you received Christ Jesus the Lord, walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, even as you were taught, abounding in it in thanksgiving. Be careful that you don't let anyone rob you through his philosophy and vain deceit, after the tradition of men, after the elements of the world, and not after Christ. For in him all the fullness of the deity dwells bodily, and in him you are made full, who is the head of all principality and power. In him you are also circumcised with a circumcision not made with hands, in the putting off of the body of the sins of the flesh, in the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the working of God, who raised him from the dead. You were dead through your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh." He made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses, wiping out the handwriting in ordinances which was against us. He has taken it out of the way, nailing it to the cross. Having stripped the principalities and the powers, he made a show of them openly, triumphing over them in it. Let no one therefore judge you in eating or in drinking, or with respect to a feast day, or a new moon, or a Sabbath day, which are a shadow of the things to come. But the body is Christ's. Let no one rob you of your prize of self-abasement and worshiping of the angels, dwelling in the things which he has not seen, vainly puffed up by his fleshly mind, and not holding firmly to the head, from whom all the body, being supplied and knit together through the joints and ligaments, grows with God's growth. If you died with Christ from the elements of the world, why, as though living in the world, do you subject yourselves to ordinances? Don't handle, nor taste, nor touch, all of which perish with use, according to the precepts and doctrines of men. These things indeed appear like wisdom in self-imposed worship, humility, and severity to the body but aren't of any value against the indulgence of the flesh. O Lord, have mercy upon us. Thanks be to God. The Small Catechism, Holy Baptism, Part 1 What is Baptism? Baptism is not simple water only, but it is the water comprehended in God's command and connected with God's Word. Which is that Word of God? Christ our Lord says in the last chapter of Matthew, Go ye into all the world and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. The Holy Gospel is according to St. Matthew, the third and twenty-eighth chapters. In those days John the baptizer came, preaching in the wilderness of Judea, saying, 
Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by Isaiah the prophet, saying, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Make the way of the Lord ready, make his paths straight. Now John himself wore clothing made of camel's hair, with a leather belt around his waist. His food was locusts and wild honey. Then people from Jerusalem, all of Judea, and all the region around the Jordan went out to him. They were baptized by him in the Jordan, confessing their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming for his baptism, he said to them, You offspring of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore, produce fruit worthy of repentance. Don't think to yourselves, We have Abraham for our father. For I tell you that God is able to raise up children to Abraham from these stones. Even now the axe lies at the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree that doesn't produce good fruit is cut down and cast into the fire. I indeed baptize you in water for repentance. But he who comes after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you in the Holy Spirit. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will thoroughly cleanse his threshing floor. He will gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn up with unquenchable fire. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. But John would have hindered him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and you come to me? But Jesus answering said to him, Allow it for now, for thus is it fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he allowed him. Jesus, when he was baptized, went up directly from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him. He saw the Spirit of God descending as a dove and coming to him. Behold, a voice out of the heavens said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Then in chapter 28, the eleven disciples went into Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had sent them. When they saw him, they bowed down to him, but some doubted. Jesus came to them and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I commanded you. Behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Amen. O Lord, have mercy upon us. Thanks be to God. Rend your heart and not your garments, and turn unto the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful. Let the wicked forsake his way, and the unrighteous man his thoughts, and let him return unto the Lord, and he will have mercy upon him, for he is gracious and merciful. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Ghost for he is gracious and merciful. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. What is baptism? Another way of asking that question is, is baptism law or gospel? And go to any church of any denomination and ask them, what is baptism? And no matter what answer they give you, the question they're really answering will be, is baptism law or gospel? 
And so to answer this, let's look at the scripture where Christ institutes baptism, Matthew 28, where Christ says to the apostles, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the very end of the age. Did you catch that? Make disciples by baptizing, by teaching. Notice that Jesus here gives a command, a command to the disciples, which is binding on the entire church herself. Now, the general assumption among many is that if something in Scripture is a command, tells you what to do, then it is law. And if something in the Scripture is a promise, where something's given to you by grace, then it is gospel. So the assumption is, again, the assumption is a command and a promise are opposites and mutually exclusive. Make disciples, baptize, teach. These are a command, something the church is told to do. So many assume it's law, a command which we are ordered by God to fulfill. So let's meditate on this a bit. Let's go with that assumption. Just entertain ourselves. Go with that assumption. Suppose baptism is given to us as law. What then? Well, that would mean baptism is given for us to fulfill, for us to do it. If it's law, then God has given it to us as our work. It would not be God's work if we looked at it this way. It would be our work to make him happy. But the problem is that no one can do any good works of the law unless he is already saved. I think many churches accept that. If you're going to do good works, you have to be saved first. No one could do the work of baptism unless he had first been converted in the heart. Because good works can't grow from an evil heart. We know this. But only from a heart which has been brought to faith, only from that heart can good works grow. So, if baptism, water and the word, is our work, if that is not how one is brought to faith, because if baptism is a work, then it's not something we do to come to faith, or not something that brings us to faith, then we have to ask, how does a person come to faith? How is a person brought to faith? If the Spirit does not use the word and water to bring to faith, then how does he do it? Now, if baptism is law, that would mean the only way the Spirit could bring anyone to repentance, could convert any heart, can save, could bring to faith, is if the Spirit did all this by himself directly, without any means of grace, without any vehicles for salvation. That is to say, if baptism is our work, that means the Spirit would have to create faith in the heart without the word of God, without water, without bread or wine. You'd have to say that the Holy Spirit just leaps down from heaven and enters into a person's heart directly and brings faith that way. But if that's how the Spirit did, did it, without means, without vehicles for salvation, 
then how would you know that you have the Holy Spirit in salvation? What would be your assurance? What could ease your conscience in knowing that you are saved? Perhaps you tried to find assurance that your decision for Christ is how you know you are saved. But if it's your decision for Christ that gives you assurance for salvation, then it can't just be a one-time decision that you make for him. You would have to make the decision for Christ every day, really every moment. Every part of your life, waking or sleeping, would have to be deciding Christ, choosing Christ. You'd have to keep working at it which means only those who could cognitively make a decision for Christ are those who have faith. So then infants are out, and people who can't think rationally, they're out. Or, perhaps you don't find assurance in your decision. Where else could you look? Perhaps it's the fruits of your good works. The fruits of your faith, your good works, are how you would know you are saved. So if someone asked, how do you know you are saved? You would have to say, well, I loved God by doing this, and I love my neighbor by doing that, and so on. You'd have to prove to yourself by your good works that you are saved. You can only know by the fruits. Either way, you would have to keep producing good works. You'd have to keep noticing the good works you're doing. You'd have to keep pointing out your good works to have assurance that you are saved. Work, 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 work. That would be your assurance. There's only two ways of assurance. If the Holy Spirit doesn't work by means, there's only two ways to assure your salvation, and that is by you always deciding for Christ or by you always performing good works and being able to see them. Because the moment you can't see them, there's no assurance. Well, if the Spirit works directly without any means, if your assurance of salvation is your decision or your good works, what does that make baptism then? Well, you'd have to say that baptism is only a sign, just a symbol, nothing more. And they may say it's a sign giving confirmation of the faith God already accomplished in a person, or a reflection that baptism as a sign is a reflection of their decision for Jesus as a believer's baptism. But either way, baptism is God's law. The work of the believer made in holiness and sanctification. That's what baptism would be, according to this. But here's the thing. If baptism is only a sign, if there's no assurance of salvation in baptism, what happens if someone's not baptized then? What happens if the law of God is unfulfilled because you didn't baptize, because you weren't baptized? And you'd have to say nothing. If baptism is only a symbol, a person could still be saved without it. It'd be a divine law without a purpose. And if the divine law is without purpose, what does that say about the law in the rest of Scripture? About the Ten Commandments? What would that make the God of the Old Testament? He'd be a tyrant. He'd make demands of mankind without any purpose or salvation. And if that's the God of the Old Testament, you'd have to put him up against the God of the New Testament, who would almost be a different God entirely, making no demands, but offering 
some non-physical salvation, some abstract salvation which cannot be touched, seen, or tasted. Be all abstraction. No physical reality. If baptism were God's law without a purpose, then what would that say about Christ? If the Holy Spirit can work salvation without the word, without the sacraments, without the water, if the Holy Spirit works only by going directly into a person's heart, then why would Christ bother at all with the incarnation? Seems like a lot of trouble when the Holy Spirit can just leap into your heart without any means. Why bother with the Son of God at all then, really? Why would you need the second person of the Trinity? Why not just send the Spirit to work salvation all on his own? If God does not need physical means to save us, then there's no point in the Incarnation. And really, if that's the case, then it would be damnable to think that the human nature of Christ and divine nature of Christ could be one person. You'd have to deny that too. The Incarnation would be silly. Baptism itself, as demanded by God in that case, would be merely the meaningless demand of a brutal tyrant husband on his wife as he demands that she shows in some empty way that she loves him, but without any reward and without any love being given in return. So that's where it all leads. If the command of baptism is a law, then the Spirit works alone. The scriptures and the sacraments, the incarnation, are all useless. The gospel of God is not the fulfillment of the law then, but a disconnected reality from it. The incarnation is looked down upon in such a case, and the assurance of salvation would lie within your own works, your own decision. And if that's the case, then it's not really assurance at all, is it? Because we're sinners, we're going to fail at it at some point if assurance rests on us. And if you look closely in this belief of baptism as law, again, you'll see that all relation to the divine is an abstraction. That there really is no way for God to give or communicate anything to us. There is no union or intimacy with God because it would all be smashed to bits. Again, Christ says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Again, we see this. Make disciples, baptize, teach. There's no doubt this is a command and that all churches and denominations will agree on this. It's a command. However, What if the assumption that every command has to be law is wrong? What if that assumption is wrong? What if the assumption that divine commands and divine promises being mutually exclusive are also wrong? What if this divine command is actually the promise of the gospel? What if baptism is clearly gospel and not law? For instance, the Old Testament and the New Testament, they're clearly not disconnected. The same God is God in both. In fact, look in the Old Testament and you will find the flood, where the water saved eight people on the ark from destruction. And in the Old Testament, you'll find the Exodus, where the people of Israel were born in the water to be God's people. 
And tonight you heard God instituting circumcision to Abraham in the Old Testament. And notice what circumcision is. Circumcision is a command to the Old Testament church. But a command wherein God's covenant, his divine promise of salvation, is given and received in faith. Circumcision is a sign of God's covenant, but it was more. Circumcision itself is God's old covenant to his people. The covenant of circumcision is God's promise to Abram. And notice, at this time of circumcision is when God gives the name Abraham to him. Circumcision is not just a sign. Circumcision is itself, was itself, God's old covenant, which he marked into the flesh of his people. Circumcision was not just merely a sign that the Old Testament people walked with God. No, circumcision was itself the life of the Old Testament people. It was the walk they had with God. That's what circumcision not just represented. That's what circumcision was. That's what it gave. And we know this because right there in Genesis 17, it says, if they are circumcised, they are in the covenant. Because circumcision is the covenant. But if they're not circumcised, they are outside the covenant. They've broken the covenant. Because they haven't received it. That's what circumcision was. It was itself God's covenant, God's promise, God's name and life to his people. It was not their work, but his work marked in them and received by them. So you see there in the command to circumcise, just as in the command to baptize, the command is not a law or a moral requirement to be fulfilled by man for his salvation. The command is actually an invitation that gives God's promise. It doesn't give his threat. It gives his promise. The command for the church to baptize shows God's authority in instituting this sacrament by which he gives his promise. The command shows his authority to give such blessings. The certainty, the assurance that this is a divine command also shows us the certainty of the divine promise within it. Baptism comes from God alone. Baptism is performed by Christ alone. All salvation is given by God alone, accomplished by him alone. Even the Old Testament, by the flood, the exodus, circumcision, all those things weren't done by the people. But they proclaimed and gave the promise of salvation. Just like baptism, it proclaims and gives the promise of salvation. And to show us that baptism is God's work and not ours, listen to what St. Paul tells us. He says, In him you were also circumcised with the circumcision made without hands. That is, baptism. That's the circumcision made without hands. So just as circumcision removes flesh from the body, so Christ in baptism by the Spirit, in the Word, through the hands of the pastor, removes sin. And Paul continues, Paul continues by saying, In baptism, by putting off the body of the sins of flesh, by the circumcision of Christ, buried with him in baptism, in which you also were raised with him through faith in the working of God. Again, God's work, 
not ours. Who raised him, Christ, from the dead? And you being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he, the Father, has made alive in the Spirit and the Word with him, the Son, having forgiven you all trespasses, having wiped out the handwriting of requirements, that's the law, that was against us. Baptism in the New Testament has replaced the circumcision of the Old Testament. Circumcision was the Old Testament sacrament waiting for the fulfillment in Christ. Baptism is the greater New Testament sacrament which brings the fulfillment of Christ to us, which brings us into that fulfillment, into the church. Baptism is the greater circumcision made without hands, that is, made by the Spirit and the Word in the water, removing the guilt of sin from us. The Pharisees there in Matthew 3, they thought baptism was a work that they were going to accomplish to show how holy they were. And they're just like those who today see baptism as God's law. And notice when they see baptism as God's law, John the Baptist gives a terrible rebuke that they ought to repent. Because such a belief that sees baptism as our work sees the water as only water. They see the baptismal water as being only H2O in its essence. So they say water can't save because only Christ can save. But did you hear the witness of the Old Testament? Within the waters is God's salvation. Within God's covenant is a new name. In the covenant, you are made a new people. Here again, what St. Paul just said, you were buried with him in baptism, in which you also were raised with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. The essence of the water in baptism is not just H2O. The essence, the shape, of the water and baptism is the death and resurrection of Christ himself. The content that you receive in the water and baptism is Christ crucified. The water saves because it is the blood of Christ. It gives you the life of Christ himself. If the contents of the waters and the font is merely water, then baptism benefits nothing. You'd be better off taking a shower at home. Without the incarnation and Christ's atonement for our sin, then baptism is just a silly church ritual and we're just wearing funny clothes. But look at what happens in our Lord's baptism. When Christ is baptized by John, it fulfills all righteousness. That is to say, when Christ is baptized, Jesus gives the water its essence, its content, which is his death and resurrection. When you are baptized there in the water, not symbolically, but in a real concrete way. There in the waters, you're baptized into Christ's death and resurrection. That becomes your reality. You're incorporated into Christ's flesh. You're incorporated into Good Friday and Easter morning. For Christ's death is now your baptism. His resurrection is now your justification. We are not baptized so that we have God's grace infused in us, so we can receive some great divine character to do good works and earn our salvation. That's, that's not what's happening. Rather, as we receive and are brought into the crucified and risen flesh of our Lord in baptism, we, like Abraham, receive a new name, the new name of the Trinity. 
So that just as the Son stood on the banks of the Jordan as the Father spoke, His blessing and the Holy Spirit descended, likewise, in your baptism, the Father makes us alive by the Spirit and the Word in the Son incarnate, having forgiven you for the sake of Christ crucified, making us pure and holy in Christ's righteousness. Baptism is the new covenant, the promise of God fulfilled and given to us, and the life of Christ in which we now live and walk. That's what baptism is. It's the new life of Christ. It's us walking with Christ. Baptism is the new life. And so we Lutherans, we believe, teach, and confess, we actually insist that the waters of baptism actually do save, that the waters of baptism are gospel. As Paul says, don't be cheated by human philosophies, empty deceits about God's law. Don't let anyone cheat you out of this divine comfort with a false religion or a false humility, claiming that baptism is our decision or our works that neglect the body. Because baptism is not just plain water, but it is the water included in God's command and combined with God's word. Baptism is pure gospel, given in this divine command. Baptism is Christ himself. Amen. Now may the peace of God which surpasses all understanding keep your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Amen.
Behold, now is the accepted time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Let us therefore show ourselves as the ministers of God, in much patience, in watchings, in fastings, and by love unfeigned. is the accepted time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Let us therefore show ourselves as the ministers of God, in much patience, in watchings, in fastings, and by love unfeigned. O Lord, have mercy upon us. O Christ, have mercy upon us. O Lord, have mercy upon us. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Christian Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life 
everlasting. Amen. I said, O Lord, be merciful unto me. Heal my soul, for I have sinned against thee. Return, O Lord, how long? And let it repent thee concerning thy servants. Let thy mercy, O Lord, be upon us, according as we hope in thee. Let thy priests be clothed with righteousness, and let thy saints shout for joy. O Lord, save our rulers. Let the king hear us when we call. Save thy people and bless thine inheritance. Feed them also and lift them up forever. Remember thy congregation, which thou hast purchased of old. Peace be within thy walls and prosperity within thy palaces. Let us pray for our absent brethren. O thou, our God, save thy servants that trust in thee. Let us pray for the brokenhearted and the captives. Redeem Israel, O God, out of all his troubles. Send them help from the sanctuary, and strengthen them out of Zion. Hear my prayer, O Lord, and let my cry come unto thee. Out of the depths have I cried unto thee, O Lord. Lord, hear my voice. Let thine ears be attentive to the voice of my supplications. Out of the depths have I cried unto thee, O Lord. If thou, Lord, shouldest mark iniquities, O Lord, who shall stand? But there is forgiveness with thee, that thou mayest be feared. Out of the depths have I cried unto thee, O Lord. I wait for the Lord, my soul doth wait, and in his word do I hope. My soul waiteth for the Lord more than they watch for the morning. I say more than they watch for the morning. Out of the depths have I cried unto thee, O Lord. Let Israel hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is mercy, and with him is plenteous redemption. And he shall redeem Israel from all his iniquities. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Ghost, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. Out of the depths have I cried unto thee, O Lord. Turn us again, O God of hosts. Cause thy face to shine, and we shall be saved. Arise, O Christ, for our help, and redeem us for thy mercy's sake. Hear my prayer, O Lord, and let my cry come unto thee. Multiply your strength, O Lord, in the souls of your humble servants, that while we ever worship you in your holy temple, we may, together with your holy angels, rejoice in beholding you. Heavenly Father, we give thanks to you for the gift of holy baptism, whereby we are made disciples of our Lord Jesus Christ and given the gift of salvation. Teach us to believe that baptism is not just plain water, but that it is the water included in Jesus' command to baptize the nations and combined with God's word. Look down favorably, we beseech you, O Lord, upon the devotion of your people, that they, whose bodies are mortified by abstinence, may, by the fruit of your grace, be refreshed in mind. O Lord, mercifully hear our prayer, and stretch forth the right hand of your majesty to defend us from them that rise up against us. Almighty and everlasting God, who hates nothing that you have created and forgives the sins of all those who are penitent, create and make in us new and contrite hearts, that we, worthily lamenting our sins and acknowledging our wretchedness, may obtain of you, the God of all mercy, perfect remission and forgiveness. Through Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, 
ever one God, world without end. Amen. Give peace in our days, O Lord, because there is none other that fighteth for us except thou our God. O Lord, let there be peace in thy strength and abundance in thy towers. O Lord, our Heavenly Father, almighty and everlasting God, who has safely brought us to the beginning of this day, defend us in the same with thy mighty power, and grant that this day we fall into no sin, neither run into any kind of danger, but that all our doings, being ordered by thy governance, may be righteous in thy sight. Through Jesus Christ, thy Son, our Lord, who liveth and reigneth with thee and the Holy Ghost, ever one God, world without end. Amen. We give thanks unto thee, Heavenly Father, through Jesus Christ, thy dear Son, that thou hast protected us through the night from all harm and danger. And we beseech thee to preserve and keep us this day also from all sin and evil, that in all our thoughts, words, and deeds we may serve and please thee. Into thy hands we commend our bodies and souls and all that is ours. Let thy holy angel have charge concerning us, that the wicked one have no power over us. Amen. Bless we the Lord. Thanks be to God. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, and the love of God, and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.